word, what's it going to say? I want to be like Job. It goes on to say that there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. Job was prosperous. This guy got it. There's something that clicked in his brain. He wasn't just a moral man, but he was a prosperous man. He was wealthy. I tried adding up what the modern value of all these animals would be, and it was several hundred million dollars. You want to know where the majority of it came from? The camels. So if you're in South Dakota and you want to know how to make some money, start investing in the camel industry, okay? There's some real cash there. Job knew that, okay? No, don't do that. Don't, don't say my pastor told me to buy camels. I, I had a buddy one time who, who got into the uh, ostrich meat industry, and he quickly, he was promised that this is going to be the biggest thing since hamburger. And uh, as soon as he tasted it, he realized after buying like 10 or 15 ostriches, not a good idea. Number one, you got to take care of them. Number two, meat's not good. So don't listen to pastor's advice on what to invest in, okay? But Job was prosperous. He was a family man, right? He was, he was righteous. He was innocent. He was blameless. And as it'll say later on that, that his kids would go. He had 10 children, and his 10 kids would go, and they would, would have these parties. And we don't know if they were good or if they were bad, but Job knew that even if a sin was committed, he would go and he would make sacrifices so as to cover them. Job did everything. Everything about Job's life that we see in Scripture is taking him and elevating him and saying, this is what the best human being you could ever be looks like. This is Job. And I think there's something in each one of us that says, I want to be like that man. But here's where the tension comes in. Here's where our faith begins to falter. Job was a man of faith. Job was a man who had faith in God, and God had blessed him. But here's where the tension's at. We see in the story, as it unfolds, this sort of divine court scene, this divine almost competition that ensues. And you, you're taken from Job's life up into the courts of heaven, and God is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning, and all of a sudden, the deceiver comes in, the Satan, right? Satan himself comes in, and he challenges God. And actually, God says, have you seen my servant Job? Have you seen this proto-human, this, this guy who's got it all figured out? And Satan says, yeah, I've seen him. God says, there's none like him in all the earth. He's blameless and upright, who fears God, and he turns away from evil. And Satan says back in Job 1, verses 9 through 11, he answers the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. They've increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is the heart of the book right here. If you have your Bibles out, I want you to underline this verse. Je or the, the devil is challenging the very heart of the human condition. He goes before God and he says, look, I've seen Job. Yeah, oh, bravo, Job. He's so great. He's so moral. Yeah, oh, look at him. You know why Job is that way, God? It's because you've given him stuff. You know why Job is the perfect representation of the American dream and working hard and being a good person? You know why he has faith in you? It's because you've given him all that stuff. Take it away. Take it away and see what happens. See, oftentimes this, this book creates two questions in our mind, right? 
There's two questions that naturally come as we enter into the book of Job. The first one is this, why does the innocent suffer? We're going to see in a little bit Job loses everything. We're going to look at this scene between God and the devil, and we're going to say, God, what are you doing? Why are you even giving Satan a place in the courts of heaven? Why are you even letting him test Job? Why are you letting this happen? And so we ask the question, why? Why do the innocent suffer? Why is God going to allow this to happen? And here's a spoiler alert. The book of Job never gives us that answer. I've read it several times. Let me tell you, never gives us the answer as to why God allows the innocent to suffer. But there's another question that's even more important that I think if we can learn to grapple with and deal with, it'll help us in the midst of our own suffering. And that is this, why is it that you and I follow after God? That's what Satan is challenging. Micah, the reason you follow after God is because you got a job as a pastor and they pay your light bills. The reason, you gotta, the reason that you follow God is because God has given you a nice little family that you have and that you can be a father over, and he's given you a nice little wife. That's why you're following God. If God were to take all of that away, oh, Micah, I don't know. I don't know if you'd follow him anymore. The main question of the book of Job is not why do the innocent suffer. The main question of the book of Job is why do you, why do I follow God? Is it because of what he gives or is it because of who he is? Do we follow God because of what he gives or do we follow God because of who he is? The whole book of Job is Job realizing, why am I following this God? God never gives him the answer. At the end of the book, we're going to see God talking with Job. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't come to Job and say, Job, here's the reason why. Let me tell you about my conversation with the devil. Let me tell you about all these things that I had worked out. Here's all the reasons why you suffer. God never tells him a thing. The book of Job asks us a deeper question that will get us focused not on the why, God, do you allow the innocent to suffer, but it will focus us on a God who loves us even despite a world that has fallen and broken, a world that ultimately we messed up. Let's read Job 1, 13 through 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Thank you, servant number one. While he was yet speaking, there came another, servant number two. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came servant number three who said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came servant four. Man, it just keeps getting better and better. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is horrible. This is potentially the worst thing that could possibly happen to a human being. But here's what you need to see. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Job withstands the first attack. 
we're going to see Job fall on his face in worship of God. He's going to say, naked I have come into this world, naked I will leave. We're going to see in a little bit, Satan's going to go back before God and he's going to say, okay, I've taken away the stuff, but, but look, you could take away the stuff, but he still has his health. If you take away his health care, if you take away the benefits, then, then he's going to bail on you and God says, okay, go for it. You can have him, but you can't kill him. And so Job gets disease, Job gets infection, the dude is just miserable, he loses everything, he even loses his own health to the point where he's crying out to die, and what Job does is incredible, he falls on his face and he worships, because he knows his role in the universe, and he knows the God who is in control. As we continue on, remember what the heart of the book is. How do we make it through suffering? See, suffering shakes our paradigm of God's justice. Write that down. Suffering shakes the paradigm of God's justice. And we have to understand what the world's view of justice is. Job had three friends. And these three three friends represent the wisest people that lived in the East. These friends came to Job, and they were there with him. They listened to him cry, and and, and they mourned with him for a week. And then they started to speak to him. And they began to espouse the wisdom that they knew, the wisdom of the East, the wisdom that I think many of us, if you were really to pry, that's what we believe something very similar to Job's friends. And it's summarized this way. They saw Job in his suffering. They saw Job in his affliction. And they immediately assume one of three things. Either, Job, you have sinned. You've done something wrong. There's something wrong with your faith. You didn't believe enough. There's something broken with you, and that's why you're suffering. Job, what is it that you did? Every one of his friends are going to, in one way or another, ask this question. Job. They're going to try to help get to the bottom of his issue. They're going to try to find that deep-rooted sin that if they could just get to that sin, they would realize why all the affliction was happening to Job. They try to encourage him and say, Job, God is setting you up to be an example. And that's, in a sense, true, right? He's setting you up to be an example for other people. He's setting you up because he's trying to correct you or discipline you, and God disciplines those who he loves. But in every one of these cases, in Job's situation, they're wrong. See, they have the wisdom that says, if you're a good person, then good things will happen to you. If you're a bad person, then bad things will happen to you. And if you really press the issue, I think a lot of us would agree with that. There's an element of truth in that, right? You make bad decisions, bad things happen. You make good decisions, oftentimes good things will happen, right? There's this idea of wisdom that's very true. But when we come to Job's life, Job maintains throughout all of this, throughout every conversation, through like the 35 plus chapters of his friends grilling this guy, trying to help him figure out why it is that he's suffering, Job maintains his innocence. And he appeals to God. He says he's frustrated, he's angry, he's, he's done with his friends, and he's basically saying, God, I know I'm innocent. Give me my day in court. Give me my moment where I can stand before you and make an appeal because I am an innocent man. When we look at Job's life and when we apply it to ourselves, what we have to realize is that suffering should move us to worship, not to waver.
it should move us to worship, not to waver. When you experience things in your life, difficulties, trials, do you do what I do? I turn to rationality. I try to think my way through it. Why is this happening? If I can just get, grapple with the idea of why it's happening, then maybe I can control this. Maybe I, can, maybe I can manage this a little bit better so that my life will be a little bit better. See, oftentimes, uh, this point is made by a pastor named Tim Keller, right? And he says the gift can distract us from the giver. The problem is you can't control God. That's not your role. You don't get to control him. If you're trying to deal with this question rationally, you'll never get the answer that you desire. And even if you had the answer you desire, you would love God based on the answer, not because he is God. See, he he asked the question, if God would just show me what would come of this, then, then I'd be okay to maybe have this suffering. Then I can maybe lift my head up and see beyond what's going on in my life because I know what the end result will be. I know that after 10 years of dealing with this cancer, I'm going to come out the other side and my family's going to be inspired and things are going to be taken care of. But what Tim Keller says that I think is so profound is he says, you know what that is? That's networking. If you're a small business owner, you know what it is, right? What is networking? It's when you go and you build relationships with people that can benefit you that can help you get ahead in life. You build your relationship. You have a small business that's you know, maybe downtown or, or on the outskirts of Aberdeen, or maybe you have a nice farm, and you realize, boy, if I had a relationship with that guy down the road, then I could maybe borrow his equipment. Then maybe he can give me some insights on how I can run my business better. And so all of a sudden, you're building a relationship with that person. But as soon as that person runs out of things to offer you, what happens? That relationship, because it was so superficial begins to disintegrate and if they're no longer giving you the thing you need or you're no longer giving them the thing they need you stop seeing them they stop seeing you let's make it real personal if you're a lady right if you're a lady in the room and let's say you're dating this guy man he just seems like he is like you're seeing the writing on the wall marriage you're thinking man he's going to put a ring on it like and we're going to have some babies and this is going to be awesome right i mean he's he's serving me he's laying his life down for me but then you tell him he starts to make moves and he wants to have a sexual relationship with you and you say no 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 i don't want to do that and all of a sudden the text messages stop All of a sudden, those phone calls that you're used to hearing and that sweet talk and and the help that he was giving you before, when you don't give him something that you want or that he wants, that relationship, because it was networked, begins to disintegrate. See, if we knew all the whys, and I think God knows this, if we knew all the whys, God knows that we would love him for the answer, for the gift not because he's the giver. See, this wisdom will always make you waver. If this is how you think about suffering, if this is how you ask God the why questions, so that you can get the answer, because then if you have the answer, you have control. You'll always be frustrated. You'll always be irritated. And you know why? It's because you're the one who's in control. And what we see in Job's life is that God is the one who's meant to be in control. Does affliction make you waver or does it make you worship? Job 1, 20 through 21. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is wise in the midst of our suffering. Job turns to worship because the wisdom of the world has let him down. And he knows it will let him down. He knows the only thing he can cling to right now is a God that's not giving him answers, but a God who is there. He makes his appeal to God. Check this out. This is where it gets really good. He makes his appeal to God, this sickly, diseased man who has lost everything and who thinks he's innocent before God, and God grants him that appeal. We see Job before God, and he, he begins to say all these things, and he begins to go on his rant about how he's innocent, about how he is, should be justified before God, and listen to how God responds. This is the first line that God says to Job in Job 40, verses 7 through 9. This is how God speaks to a man who's lost his family, he's lost his fortune, and he's lost his health. This is what God says, dress for action like a man. Woo! I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder a voice like this? He goes on to say, he, he uses this analogy of the Leviathan and the behemoth, these two massive creatures. Some people say they were real. Some people say they're these mythological creatures that were out there. And God uses this illustration. He says to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? He jumps down to verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? You know what God does not do to Job? He doesn't come to Job and say, oh, Job, come here, buddy. Let me help you. Job makes his appeal to God, and you know what God does? He says, I'm the creator of the universe. I manage not just a household, not just some camels or some oxen. I manage the entire globe. I manage the entire universe. These animals that you look at and are terrified of, I created them and I managed them. Job, you have no idea how complex the universe is. And so when you come to me with your complaint and with your appeal and with your pride, I just want to tell you, Job, this is the answer that God gives Job, there's a lot more going on in this universe than what you realize. And what you see is not injustice. What you see is a God who is managing, organizing, and maintaining a universe. You're seeing the sovereignty of God. You know what God does? He says, Job, if you think you're so good, if you think I'm so unjust, if you think I'm doing a bad job, do you want to do my job for a day? How many, how many parents have you said that to your kids? You want to do my job for a day? Huh, you little punk, right? That's what God does with Job. And you know what Job does? He shuts his mouth. Job shuts his mouth. He has nothing to respond to God. Here's what's beautiful about it. Job gets put in his place. He never understands why. In your mind, you're probably thinking, Micah, this just seems so, this seems so unfair. Here's what God's doing. God only allowed Satan enough rope to hang himself. Tim Keller says this as well. God only gives Satan enough rope. When Satan comes and challenges God about Job, do you see what happens here? 
Satan is the one who executes the evil. God hates suffering. God made a world where there is no suffering. He made a world where there is no wrong. Yet we messed it up. So we see Satan executing the suffering on Job's life. We see a God who's in total control. Satan comes to to God and says, I want to take away his health. Then he'll curse you. And what does God do? He sets the parameters because he has the authority. He says, yeah, you can do that, but you can't take his life. God is in control even in the midst of this. Why? Because he's letting the devil learn that he is defeated. God is giving Satan enough rope where he can hang himself. When he says, look at Job, he only loves you because of the stuff, because of his health. God can look at this and say, no, look at Job. He loves me for me. Our afflictions lead us to the foot of Jesus. Job didn't get the answers he wanted. He got the answer he needed, and it brought him into close relationship with God. My wife and I, with our two lovely little girls, watched an awesome movie, the Peanuts movie. You guys have seen that new one that came out? Charlie Brown, amen, we're going to go from Job to Charlie Brown, isn't that awesome, okay, and what I love about this movie is it follows the, the path of clumsy, you know, failed Charlie Brown, right, the guy who can't even kick a football, yet he tries over and over and over again to do it, and it, it follows his life as he meets for the first time the little red-headed girl, she walks into the classroom for the first time, and, and Charlie Brown is sitting in the back where he normally sits, and he sees her, and his, his jaw drops, and his eyes get, you know, his little beady black eyes get big, right, and he sees her for the first time, and he's just taken by her. His desire has been snatched. He's been captivated by this little red-headed girl, and you see the rest of the movie, he's trying to win the attention and the affection of this adorable little girl, and what I love about it is it never shows her face. And never gives you a clear picture of who she is until the end of the movie. They show her mouth from the mouth down. They show the side of her face. They'll show her whole face, but she's shadowed far away from the camera. And so there's this mystery that surrounds this little girl, this little red-headed girl. And Charlie Brown is just head over heels in love with her. And so he's trying to work up this courage to talk to her and and impress her. And so he tries these dance moves and he ends up messing everything up. He tries to to do this awesome magic show so as to earn her affection and gain her attention, right? And he ends up not and just totally failing in the process. And he just feels like a loser. He feels like he's messed everything up with his chances with the little red-headed girl. But then at the end of the movie... It's summertime, and everybody's getting ready. It's the last day of school. They're getting ready to go home and and do their summertime things. And and you hear, hey, we're going to be picking partners. We're going to be picking partners for the summer pen pal program. And so Charlie Brown sinks down in the seat because he knows nobody's going to want to be my partner. Nobody's going to want to be with me. So classmate one gets chosen. Classmate two gets chosen. They say Charlie Brown's name. Who's going to stand up and be Charlie Brown's partner? He looks around ashamed to see this little redhead girl. Oh, I'll be his partner. And he is just, again, his dreams have been reignited. His passion has been reignited. And he asks a simple question, why did the little redhead girl choose me? And so he's desperate to find out. He, he goes to her house, he rings the doorbell, and he stands there courageous for the first time in the movie. He's going to talk to the little redhead girl, only to find out that his mom is there, 
right? He meets the mom and he asks her the question, hey, can I talk to the little redheaded girl? And you hear, wah, 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 right, right? Like the Charlie Brown uh, parents speak, okay? And he finds out that she's leaving for summer camp and so he takes off running to find the little redhead girl. He runs through this carnival where he gets hit by baseballs and he gets squirted by water. He, he jumps through this spinning tunnel where he gets beat up and bruised and, and he runs as fast as he can and he, he ends up stopping by this tree where he sees the little redhead girl in line to get on the bus to leave for camp and he realizes I may not get to speak to her and he looks up to heaven and he prays this little prayer I'm just asking for a little help once in my life he grabs the tree bangs his head against it and out falls a kite he looks up and if you know anything about Charlie Brown him and kites do not get along at all he looks up in the tree and this is the tree killer this is the, the kite-killing tree. This is the tree that every time Charlie Brown tries to fly a kite, it just messes it up. Kite represents pain. It represents agony in the mind of this child, right? Every time he does it, he fails. Every time he does it, he messes up, and there's pain that comes with it. He'll run into his friends, and eventually, always, he runs into this tree, and he just gets hurt over and over and over again. And so now here he is at the foot of this tree, a kite falls out right after he prays to God for a little bit of help. And he just grunts in frustration because of what that kite represents. But that kite takes off. It wraps around his foot and it pulls him. It drops him on his back. He, he hits the ground and he grunts in pain. And this kite begins pulling him and he's frustrated and he's irritated. But then he looks up and realizes this kite is taking me towards the one that I desire the most. And so instead of fighting the kite now, he turns around. He grabs the string with all of his might. And all of a sudden, Charlie Brown, <laughs> praise God, he's flying a kite. Right? And this kite takes him on a, a crazy journey and he ends up jumping over a truck and like face planting on the pavement. And all this happens as the little girl is getting ready to take her step from the pavement to the bus. Charlie Brown is laying on his face and that kite that represents his pain, his agony, his suffering, the, the, the pain that he never knew why he couldn't fly a kite. He didn't have the answers to why he couldn't fly a kite, but the kite that day flew and it took him. If you watch the movie, that kite comes, floats in, and it taps the foot of the little redheaded girl. And she stops, she gets off, and this is their conversation. She turns around, you see her face, in full array for the first time. And she says, oh, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, you remembered my name. Of course I did. He asked, before you leave, there's something I need to know. Why out of all the kids in our class, why did you want to be partners with me? She said, that's easy because I've seen the type of person that you are. An insecure, wishy-washy failure? You thought it was good here you should see the movie it's even better she said no that's not who you are at all and with her face fully revealed for the first time in the movie she begins to speak life into charlie brown i know that you're brave i know that you're courageous and you're funny that you love your sister those are all things that i admire about you charlie that's who you are here's what you need to see charlie brown never had the to why he couldn't fly the kite. 
But that kite that represented pain, suffering, agony, led him to the foot of the one he desired the most. God does not give us the answers to why the innocent suffer, but what is clear from Job is that when we grab hold of God and hold on tight, when we grab hold of our affliction and we don't jettison God, we get to experience and know God deeper than before. Job 42, 5 through 6 says this, I had heard of you. This is what Job says after God confronts him. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Job didn't need answers to his questions when he came face to face with God. And his response is repentance and trust. He gets it. The righteous live by faith. Job's response through suffering was faith. He understood that he could never understand everything and learn to live in the mystery because his pain, whether he liked it or not, his affliction, his kite, led him to the one who was in control, led him to the one who loved Job simply for Job. And Job realized he could love God because of God. See, Jesus is the better Job. There was one who came who was better than Job. Jesus came and he died naked and ashamed. He died lonely on a cross and he cries out, my God, my God. What does he say next? Why? Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? Why has this happened? Jesus in his flesh cried out, God, why? Why does the innocent suffer? God, why? Here's the kicker. Job got an answer. Job cried out and God gave him an answer. He let Job see his face and God gave Job an answer. And in fact, when God realized Job loves me for me, he gives Job twice everything he had. Job got twice of everything, twice as many kids, twice as many animals. Just one wife still. Job gets all of that back. He gets the answer from God, yet when Christ, the the truly innocent man, the one who's really done nothing wrong in all of him. He was the proto-human. He was better than Job. When Jesus cries out on a cross, there's no answer. He's forsaken. He's abandoned. Why? Because in that moment, Jesus was experiencing the separation from God that awaits us if we don't turn to him in faith. Jesus took that separation so you and I wouldn't. Tim Keller says another thing that's, that's just fantastic. He says when Satan comes into the courtroom of God, he challenges God with something about us, and God believes in Job. God be- doesn't believe the lie of Satan. Rather, he believes that Job will hold on. But when we look at our story, we look at our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve in the garden, what happened with them? Satan went to them and he did the exact same thing. He went and he deceived them about God and said, does God really love you? Does God really have what's best for you? And you know what humanity did? We didn't believe. Why? Because at the very root of our lives, we don't believe that God loves us. We don't believe that God is there for us. And so God did something to prove to you and me that he loves us more than anything we could ever imagine. Jesus' pain, his affliction, his torment, his kite led him to glorify the Father. But you know where else it led him? It led him to the object of his affection, and that's you. 
Jesus' pain, his agony, his suffering, this innocent man died on a cross. Why? Because his kite led him to the object of his affection. You. God is calling us to love him for him because he loves you for you. It's not because you've done all the right things. It's not because you're so righteous. It's because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you for you. Do you love him for him or do you love him for the benefits he brings? Jesus is waiting for the day when you will see him face to face. Your pain, your affliction can lead you to great agony and despair or they can lead you to the object and the person that your soul craves more than anything else. Do you know him today? Have you turned from your sin? Have you repented and said, Jesus, today I'm making you Lord and Savior of my life? If you've not done that and you say, I want to know this Jesus because I want to be like Job, I'm going to be back at starting point after this. We can go somewhere private and I would love to talk with you about that. If that's you, please respond today. If you're going through suffering and affliction, find a pastor. We want to pray with you. Don't leave this building without getting prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Job. We thank you that even in the midst of suffering, you are with us. And that we don't always get the answers we want. We get the answers we need. And so, Father, would you help us love you for you? Lord, we don't want to be a church that loves you because you give us good things or because you bless us or because you have promises that inspire us God we want to love you for who you are so Lord whatever it is that we're going through right now whether it's something small or whether it's something big Father help us to hold tight to that string help us hold tight to your promises help us to hold tight to who you are so that at the end of the day God that kite that pain that affliction can lead us to the foot of the one our soul craves the most. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.